The idea of alien life has intrigued humankind for millennia. The Xenomorph, from the 1979 film Alien and its sequels, is the worst-case scenario for such a prospect. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to check out the Villains feed exclusively on Spotify. This month, we're taking on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Follow Villains free only on Spotify. The following episode contains references to biological warfare, genocide, and sexual violence. Please exercise caution for children under 13. Interface 2037, ready for inquiry. Special Order 937 initiated. Nostromo rerouted to new coordinates. Investigate lifeform. Gather specimen. Priority 1. Ensure return of organism for analysis. All other conditions secondary. Crew expendable. In the year 2122, the commercial star freighter Nostromo receives this special order, which guides them to a seemingly desolate planet. There, they achieve humanity's long-awaited first contact with alien life. But this encounter is far from the optimistic dreams of Flash Gordon and amazing stories. This alien is a creature out of humanity's darkest nightmares. It is a predator more ferocious than the most violent human beings on Earth. Part carnivore, part parasite, we are not just its food, we are an integral part of its reproductive cycle. And its very survival relies on its ability to turn our own bodies against us. Hello everyone, this is Alastair. Welcome back to Villains, the podcast where we discuss the monsters that haunt the world of fiction and determine just where in the real world their evil comes from. If you're just joining us, last week we wrapped up our season on the villains of Harry Potter. Characters like Voldemort, Snape and Dolores Umbridge show us how mythic themes of good and evil manifest in the world of a magical British boarding school. This month, we're going to explore worlds that are just as fantastical, but nowhere near as whimsical. This is our season on the villains of science fiction. Space travel has always been an optimistic endeavor. It is seen by many as a natural step in human evolution, to break free of planet Earth and create human colonies across the known universe. But today's villain sheds light on the dark side of that ambition. The fear that if we go too far into the unknown, we'll encounter a creature of pure evil. One that can't be reasoned with, killed, or controlled. Join me as we discuss the Xenomorph. We'll take our first steps into the terrifying void of outer space after this. In space, no one can hear you scream. This was the tagline of 1979's Alien, a science fiction horror film directed by Ridley Scott. Pitched as Jaws in Space, this creature feature struck an immediate chord with audiences for its striking atmosphere and razor-sharp tension. The tagline is a perfect summary of the film's tone. 
bleak, desolate, and cold. In a single line, it takes the wonder of space and turns it on its head. Being a pioneer in such a vast frontier can be inspiring, but it's also unimaginably lonely. And if you need someone to save you, your screams will do you no good. Two years earlier, Star Wars had broken box office records and redefined science fiction cinema. It was Flash Gordon with a massive budget and attractive moral simplicity. Alien was the exact opposite in every conceivable way. And instead of a wacky plethora of aliens we see in Star Wars, Alien only gives us one extraterrestrial organism. One that would later be dubbed the Xenomorph. The entire arc of the film is one of discovery, framed around the gruesome evolution of the eponymous alien. This life cycle has four stages. First, it's a strange but unassuming leathery egg. When you get close, the top of the egg opens like a mouth. Second, a creature emerges from within, halfway between a crab and a spider with a prehensile tail and incredibly strong legs. It latches onto the face of a host and forces its eggs down their esophagus. Within 20 hours, the crab detaches and the host seems to return to normal until the third stage of the alien life cycle violently begins. A snake-like thing forces its way through the host's chest, killing the host and releasing the reborn alien into the world. Finally, the alien sheds its skin to reveal its adult form, a powerful, almost mechanical-looking humanoid, an enormous phallic head and nearly impenetrable metallic skin. If you can break through its hide, it has one more weapon waiting in store. Acidic blood strong enough to burn through a spaceship hull within minutes. When it opens its jaws to attack, a smaller jaw shoots outward to burrow into your flesh or pull you in closer so its larger fangs can finish the job. The alien was unlike anything ever seen before or since. When most movie monsters were easily identifiable as a stuntman in a suit, the Xenomorph's evolving appearance gives it a mystique that builds dread throughout the film. And when it is glimpsed, its appearance is utterly unnatural. For a monster ostensibly born of a human, the only human characteristic it inherits is its bipedalism. Perhaps its most frightening characteristic is that it doesn't have eyes. Without these windows to the soul, the Xenomorph appears to be a soulless killing machine. The science officer aboard the Nostromo, Ash, describes it as a perfect organism. He elaborates by saying, its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. I admire its purity, a survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. It is suited to hunt and destroy in a way that no terrestrial predator ever could. The alien's singular design and evolution throughout the story makes one wonder what sort of twisted mind comes up with something this disturbing and, for lack of a better word, alien. What makes the Xenomorph such a unique creature is that it is not the product of a single author. The alien is a synthesis of human fears, including disease, insects, eugenics, and archetypes from ancient mythology. At the center of it all is a universal dread 
the loss of bodily autonomy. This concept, also sometimes referred to as bodily integrity, refers to the idea that a person has ownership over their own body. It is a field of human rights that remains at the forefront of political discussion to this day, regularly invoked in court discussions regarding sex crimes, abortion, euthanasia, and birth control. It is also a right that is regularly violated in the natural world. Wasps, for instance, lay their eggs in unsuspecting insects, and our own mortal bodies fail us when we least expect. Laws may declare that a human being has the final say in what happens to their body, but ultimately, these decisions are often made by biology without our input. One of the screenwriters behind the original Alien film, Dan O'Bannon, had a particular insight into what it was like to lose control of your own insides. Throughout his life, O'Bannon suffered from Crohn's disease, a gastrointestinal condition that causes severe swelling of the intestinal tract. He regularly woke up in such pain that Ronald Chousset, his co-writer for the film, would have to drive him to the emergency room in the middle of the night. This agony, this utter loss of bodily control, made O'Bannon feel like there was a malevolent beast trying to tear its way out of him. The alien's violent birth was an expression of the writer's struggle with the disease. To this day, the cause of Crohn's disease is unknown and there is no cure. Treatments can slow the inflammation and reduce pain, but it often sticks with individuals throughout their entire lives. It would later kill O'Bannon in 2009 at the age of 63. O'Bannon's experiences tie the medical pain he felt his entire life with a sense of powerlessness and impending doom, which may explain why O'Bannon loved the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, whose horror revolved around cosmic entities beyond the comprehension of the human mind. The designer of the alien's appearance, Swiss artist Hans Rudolf Giger, was another Lovecraft fan. Giger even named his first compendium of works Necronomicon, after a tome of Lovecraft's stories. These paintings formed the direct inspiration for the alien's mature form, which Giger was then hired to help build. Director Ridley Scott described Giger's work as beautiful, not just threatening. The alien also has very sexual connotations, so in everything, it's like a rather beautiful humanoid, biomechanoid insect. Scott's contribution to the design was the jaws of the phallic chestburster. He suggested using the 1944 Francis Bacon painting Three Studies for Figures at the base of a crucifixion as inspiration. This unsettling image tied the alien even further into cultural memory. While Giga's paintings were surreal and abstract, Bacon focused on warped depictions of the human form, horrific paintings that weren't surreal, but drawn from then contemporary atrocities during the Second World War. These three creators, Scott, Giger, and O'Bannon, fashioned a creature that disturbs both the conscious and subconscious mind. But what makes it especially abhorrent is the violent way in which it is born. An allusion to sexual assault plays a key part in its life cycle. The reliance on metaphors for sexual assault was not new to horror cinema. Psycho, 
the progenitor of the slasher film genre, became notorious for its scene of a woman getting attacked in the shower with a knife, itself a phallic symbol. Slasher films throughout the 1970s and well into the 1980s were rife with helpless women being preyed on by vicious men. Writing on gender dynamics within the genre, Professor Carol J. Clover pointed out, actual rape is practically non-existent in the slasher film, evidently on the premise that violence and sex are not concomitants but alternatives, and expounded on how even when the films have victims of both sexes, the females are still objectified, saying, even in films in which males and females are killed in roughly even numbers, the lingering images are inevitably female. The death of a male is always swift, even if the victim grasps what is happening to him, he has no time to react or register terror. He is dispatched and the camera moves on. The murders of women, on the other hand, are filmed at closer range, in more graphic detail and at greater length. Clover objected to the use of violence to titillate a male audience, using female fears for male enjoyment. Alien was an antidote for these gendered cliches, weaponizing imagery of sexual assault against men. The alien's first victim is a man named Cain, who is forced into an unwilling pregnancy that ends in his gruesome death on camera. Ash, the science officer on board, underlines this theme by calling the alien Kane's son. In science fiction, the very real fear a cisgender woman feels at bearing the child of her rapist can be directed at any human, regardless of their biology. Scott and O'Bannon use this as an opportunity to make male audience members uncomfortable. O'Bannon would later say, One thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. I said, that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually, and I'm not going to go after the women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I am going to put in every image I can think of to make the men in the audience cross their legs. Homosexual oral rape, birth. The thing lays its eggs down your throat, the whole number. Unlike the metaphorical sexual assault in earlier slashes of the era, there was no titillation in how the xenomorph violates its victims. There is only terror, and if the victim is lucky enough to survive, trauma. Like victims of sexual violence in real life, Ellen Ripley, sole survivor of the Nostromo, shows symptoms of PTSD in all the following alien films. She has nightmares about an alien bursting out of her own chest and is unable to truly relax, even after she's escaped the clutches of her attacker. In Alien 3, she talks about the xenomorph almost like she's talking to her own abuser. You've been in my life so long, I can't remember anything else. Though the alien itself is a fictional character, it is an archetypal representative of trauma experienced in the real world by survivors of assault or invasive medical procedures. It is, in a sense, an inhuman mirror of human evils. But what historical evil could possibly compare with the nightmarish alien? One that society tried for decades to keep under wraps, an experiment in biological warfare in the early 1940s, the very time period that inspired Francis Bacon to paint the artwork that would inspire the chestburster. 
coming up. We'll examine the xenomorph's ties to history. Now, back to the story. Monsters have always haunted the very fringes of humanity's knowledge. Before we knew what giant squids and whales were, sailors wrote about spotting sea monsters beneath their ships. Medieval mapmakers used such imagined beasts to illustrate uncharted waters, often marking them with the words Hic sunt draconis, Latin for Here be dragons. These drawings could almost be called folkloric warnings of traveling too far into the unknown. The xenomorphs, as seen in the alien films, are a science fiction extension of this superstition. If outer space was a paper map, they would be the unspeakable monsters that take up the uncharted regions. The ship in 1979's Alien is named the Nostromo and its shuttle, which brings back the alien life form, is called the Narcissus. Both of these are references to novels by Joseph Conrad. Most infamous for his book Heart of Darkness, Conrad was an author whose work was largely concerned with the demons of Belgian imperialism and the European urge toward colonialism. He would write, in his 1911 book Under Western Eyes, The belief in a supernatural source of evil is not necessary. Men alone are quite capable of every wickedness. The xenomorph is terrifying for how it represents our nightmares, but just as terrifying is its ability to reveal the evil in the people around it. In the original Alien film, the Nostromo is sent to retrieve the xenomorph by a confidential directive from the company. This directive says the mission priority is to return with a specimen of the alien, regardless of how many casualties it causes among the crew. In this film, the betrayal of the crew is systematic. The only face of the company on board is an android. The sequel, Aliens, would make it more personal. The marines that arrive on LV-426 in Aliens are accompanied by a representative of the Wayland yutani Corporation named Carter Burke. During the events of the film, he attempts to have Ripley and a child impregnated by aliens so he could smuggle the embryos back to the company. In both cases, the company's priority, and by extension the priority of human society, is clear. Acquiring a deadly new creature for the weapons division is more important than the survival of ordinary workers employed by the company. The corporation doesn't see the xenomorph as a creature. It sees it more like a biological weapon. And this tendency only deepens the alien's connection to the traumas of humanity. Throughout human history, we've been fascinated by the ways in which the human body can fall apart. This interest extends through injury, old age, and especially disease. Biological warfare, both intentional and unintentional, has been a part of the fabric of human society since as early as 400 BC. A famous early example is during the Black Plague, when infected bodies were catapulted over city walls to infect enemies during a siege. The good of humanity as a whole didn't matter only that the attacker won the day. The instance of biological warfare most relevant to discussions of the alien is far more refined from a scientific perspective, but in the end is just as short-sighted and cruel as its medieval predecessor. In our episode on Mrs. Coulter from His Dark Materials, 
we discussed how Nazi surgeon Josef Mengele experimented on children for the insidious purpose of improving humanity. During this very same period of history, certain allies of Germany were also participating in experiments that also robbed human beings of the ownership of their own bodies. And they gave little pretense of improving humanity. Their goal, like that of Weyland Utani, was to create new and improved biological weapons, no matter the human cost. On October 27, 1940, citizens of Ningbo, China, spotted low-flying aircraft overhead. The planes did not drop bombs or open fire. They scattered seemingly harmless wheat grain onto the city below. The purpose of this gesture would not become clear for another two days. On October 29th, there was an outbreak of bubonic plague across the city. 97 civilians died, all because of the infection that was dropped on them from the sky. This wasn't an attack. It was an experiment by a division of the Japanese army. The official title of this division was the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kwantung Army. It is more commonly known as Unit 731. The official title is a bit misleading. Their actions during the war seem to be the exact opposite of epidemic prevention and water purification. Under the command of Surgeon General Shiro Ishii, Unit 731 committed some of the most horrific war crimes in recorded history. The true extent of their deeds will never fully be known, as all their official records were destroyed at the end of the war. Documents were burned, and all remaining prisoners were killed and buried, as if they never existed at all. But it is impossible to completely erase the stain of villainy from history, even if it's hidden behind many layers of bureaucracy and willful ignorance. Someone like Carter Burke, who would willingly turn his own colleagues into living vessels for an alien life form, would be well at home within this detachment. Prisoners would be infected with all sorts of deadly diseases, including bubonic plague, anthrax, and cholera, and then were studied like lab rats. More often than not, these studies ended with the patients getting dissected while still alive. A farmer involved with the operations remarked in a later interview, if we'd used anesthesia, that might have affected the body organs and blood vessels that we were examining so we couldn't have used anaesthetic. These victims had their bodily autonomy robbed from them during Unit 731's experiments. They were referred to by medical staff as logs rather than patients. When biological weapons were ready for testing, select patients were taken out to a proving ground of sorts and tied to stakes. Once secure, scientists would test diseases, plague bombs, and infected shrapnel on these men and women. Some documents even alleged that experiments were performed on infants. Viral attacks like the one on Ningbo would be commonplace throughout the war. Unit 731 deployed such attacks on an estimated 11 Chinese cities. The most devastating of these came in May 1942, when Unit 731 
along with a sister unit in the Japanese army named Unit 1644, dropped cholera bombs on the city of Baoshen. Estimates vary as to how many civilians and prisoners of war were experimented on in Unit 731. The most commonly cited number is 3,000, but this number does not take into account the epidemics that Unit 731 inflicted on civilian populations. The cholera bomb of Baoshen, for instance, is rumored to have claimed over 200,000 civilian lives in the outbreak. One Japanese army doctor described his mindset in hindsight, saying, If the only way to win a war against America is bacterial warfare, I am ready. I will do anything. I thought, this is war. Victory at any cost. Repeatedly, throughout the Alien series, the importance of the xenomorph as a biological marvel, something to be studied, is almost as much of a threat as the alien itself. While other science fiction films would paint the desire to understand in a positive light, the Alien film shows it as a weakness. Our efforts to understand and harness the natural world only gets more humans killed and puts the entire human race at risk. And the only way to keep your work going is to silence dissenting voices. The Wayland yutani Corporation regularly suppresses the objections of survivors like Ripley. Without any voices of reason, their science can change the world, or so they believe. The connection between the xenomorph and would-be war criminals like Unit 731 is far from incidental. After an almost 15-year hiatus, the Alien film series would receive a revival in the 2010s, which sought to make this implicit connection to biological warfare a literal one. And in doing so, revealed the alien's limitation as a villain. Up next, we'll dissect the origins of the xenomorph. Now, back to the story. When we go into outer space, we take our own fears with us. The xenomorph is an avatar of those fears. Not only does it exploit such base human fears as the fear of sexual assault and bodily invasion, but it reminds us that there are humans who place their own fascination with death over the lives of their fellow man. A particularly egregious example of this sort of behavior would appear in World War II-era China, the Japanese Biological Weapons Department, Unit 731. This top-secret unit tortured, vivisected, and infected live human subjects to test the limits of the human body against biological forces such as disease and the elements. On top of these cruelties, they dropped plague bombs on Chinese cities. Biological warfare had been forbidden by the Geneva Convention in 1925. And like Wayland yutani Special Order 937, the actions of Unit 731 had incidental casualties among their own soldiers as well. Historians note that during their operations in the mid-1940s, Unit 731 infected wells and springs with cholera and typhoid in Zhejiang province. This particular experiment backfired and killed approximately 1,700 Japanese soldiers. You can only control a deadly force of nature to a point. 
When Unit 731 was shuttered at the end of the war, a number of the leaders of the program, including General Ishii, faced prosecution for war crimes. But in the end, not a single high-level official was prosecuted for their actions. See, representatives of the United States government made a deal with the heads of Unit 731, granting them immunity from war crimes prosecution, if they shared their data with the United States and no other country. Ishii and his doctors were interviewed extensively by American scientists about their findings. One of these reports noted, Evidence gathered in this investigation has greatly supplemented and amplified previous aspects of this field. It represents data which has been obtained by Japanese scientists at the expenditure of many millions of dollars and years of work. Chillingly, the doctors followed this up by saying, Such information could not be obtained in our own laboratories because of scruples attached to human experimentation. Acts of unspeakable evil could be forgiven, as long as the Western world could learn something from it. And this, in the end, is what makes the xenomorph the perfect predator for the human race. We are too in love with our nightmares to do what survivors like Ripley insist must be done. When Ripley agrees to go back to LV-426 with Burke and the Marines, she asks, You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. Burke lies to her, because when you destroy something in its entirety, you never learn from it. In order to conquer this alien, we first have to conquer our human instinct to investigate and understand our fascinations with darkness. And that is something that humans are almost never able to do. H.R. Giger, the designer of the Xenomorph's iconic look, was deeply influenced by the idea of militaristic and governmental forces using the human body as a playground. His half-biological, half-mechanical designs reflect his own anxieties in their familiar yet unnatural composition. Human shapes, but somehow devoid of humanity. Giger's artwork was abstract, and when its principles were applied to Alien, they were given a chance to bring that abstract terror into a grounded science fiction world. The xenomorph's not-quite-human but not-quite-biological appearance allows it to camouflage with the grungy machinery of a spaceship or military installation. It looks and feels like a weapon come to life. And in the most recent chapter of the Alien Saga, the thematic and visual connections to biological warfare are made a key component of the Xenomorph's origin. Director Ridley Scott returned to the Alien universe in 2012 to revive the series that was once considered the absolute peak of science fiction horror. With some artistic input and involvement from H.R. Giger, Scott directed Prometheus which explored the very origins of the Xenomorph as a creature. Five years later, he directed Alien Covenant, which had no involvement from Giger, who passed away in 2014. These two films show that the Xenomorph is not a naturally occurring organism. It quite literally is a biological weapon. In Prometheus, 
set years before the first alien, a group of scientists encountered jars of a black tar-like pathogen on a distant planet. Throughout the film, we see this substance interact horrifically with human beings when ingested, creating new life inside of them and causing them to deteriorate rapidly. These new life forms bear some similarities to the xenomorph, but aren't quite there yet. In Alien Covenant, the same pathogen is developed into the xenomorph by David, a rogue android who resents humanity and wishes to create the perfect replacement species. He dissects and experiments on the human characters in both films, eventually creating an organism that is very close to the alien as we knew it in 1979. parallels between the xenomorph and human experimentation, only implied up until this point, have become fully integrated into the text of the films. To further emphasize this point, Scott shows us the image of David dropping jars of the pathogen on an alien planet, committing mass murder not unlike the plague bombs dropped by Unit 731 on Chinese cities. However, as intentional as this new development is, it slightly robs the xenomorph of its power as an antagonist. See, H.R. Giger was a surrealist first and foremost. While he did not write the film, his otherworldly design firmly anchored the alien in the principles of surrealist art. Its abstract nature is part of the appeal, and in this case, an integral part of the horror. Andre Breton's 1924 Surrealist Manifesto defines surrealist thought as thought dictated in the absence of all control exerted by reason and outside all aesthetic or moral preoccupations. This description of supposed pure thought is almost directly echoed by Ash's description of the alien's purity in the original film, a being unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. All the things that make the alien horrifying the sexual imagery, the body horror, the lack of human features, are an embodiment of a creature that is meant to defy our understanding. The absence of control exerted by reason. The xenomorph's reproductive cycle is not logical from an evolutionary perspective. It only makes sense from the perspective of a nightmare. Breton's manifesto cites Sigmund Freud as an influence regularly because surrealism is an art movement of the unconscious. Its goal is to produce imagery out of the fears, thoughts, and desires that exist beneath the logical mind. The xenomorph is a creature that should not be understood. Its component parts are individually horrifying and have very specific points of reference, but to make such connections logical is to rob the creature of the very glue that binds it together. Its effectiveness in a villain is like a Rorschach test. You see the sort of body invasion you fear most reflected in its horrific design. To give it a rational, in-universe explanation is to rob it of that ineffable quality. It takes away the irrational fear we see when looking at the alien. Knowledge of its origin is reassuring, no matter how grotesque. It is more chilling to think that it could be a biological weapon of some greater alien species than to know that for certain. That's the thing about the fear of the unknown. Once we understand it, we no longer fear it. There will never be another movie monster quite like the Xenomorph, 
It perfectly captures the terror of the emptiness of space by drawing out fears that are all too familiar to us on Earth. Most of us don't really fear running into an alien creature. What we fear is that our own bodies will be weaponized against us. We fear deep space nightmares and intestinal worms. We fear parasites and bodily decay. The xenomorph is a Freudian nightmare, a symbol that can embody all of our terrors at once. It can represent how sexual assault robs victims of the ability to feel safe in their own skin. It can represent how fatal diseases can sneak up on us, even when we're feeling completely fine. It can represent how the natural world continues to evolve in ways we do not understand. And the way the Wayland yutani Corporation interacts with the aliens shows us the horrible ways humanity has always coped with its own demons by trying to weaponize them against each other. If there is a greater purpose to be served, human beings have been known to use their own species as lab rats, breaking the most fundamental law of nature. At the end of the day, mankind is still its own worst enemy. To quote Ellen Ripley, I don't know which species is worse. Next week, we're going to move away from the slimy body horror of the alien and into something a bit more cerebral. A world that exists entirely in your mind, made real by a matrix of computer code. If the xenomorph represents our fears of our bodies being used against us, Agent Smith represents our fear of social control. He's a sentient computer program literally designed to snuff out your agency your quirks, everything that makes you a unique human being, and not just a cog in the machine. So join us next Friday as we go down the rabbit hole and explore a villain who subjugates humanity first as an agent of a system and then as an identity-consuming virus. Thanks for listening to Villains. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Villains, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a Parcast Studios original and is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Villains was written by Robert Teamstra, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>